Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by my parliamentary colleague, Kim Pate, first appointed as an independent senator in 2016. Throughout her life, she's been focused on prison reform, so we speak about the importance of that issue, especially in this pandemic. We also cover the issue of poverty reduction as we work closely together on the All-Party Anti-Poverty Caucus. Senator, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much. Now, you were the executive director of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies for 24 years, I think it is, before your appointment. Why did you want to become a senator in the first place? Uh, well, it, it certainly wasn't one of my aspirations. Uh, I never thought, oh, what I really want to be is a senator when I grow up, ever. <laughs> uh, but when the prime minister decided to create the independent process, in fact, I, I, even then I wasn't particularly interested. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was a novel way to go about things, but it was when people started approaching me. So there were a few different groups of people, some who were parliamentarians, who were staffers, who had been clerks on committees I'd appeared before, different people approached. Then there were also folks who I'd worked with in the, in the context of historical sexual abuse within uh, policing and corrections and other places. And then, of course, there were folks who I was working with at the time who approached. And so when I was asked to allow my name to stand, I was very touched. I was honored and humbled that people thought about that, but I actually didn't really think it would ever happen. I had been before EFRI. EFRI was, I think, two months away from my 25th anniversary when I was appointed. And I had worked before that with the national and uh, local John Howard Society after law school. And so really my work had been doing law reform work for better part of 35 years. So I, I never really anticipated that even though it was very kind and generous that people wanted to nominate me that I'd ever be selected. So when I was, I probably know was, was more shocked than me. And so, but the reason I actually accepted was when I looked at what the role was supposed to be of one of the, the pieces that really captured my attention was in addition to being the body of sober second thought, one of the expectations is that we actually represent the interests of those who often aren't represented by elected officials because they're generally groups that aren't necessarily as popular, minority interests that often don't capture the public attention in the same way. And of course, for the last senator who had worked on prison issues that I knew of was Earl Hastings, and he died 20 years before I was appointed. And so I thought, well, that's, you know, there's work that needs to be done there. And my longer term interests were really on how do we actually build a more equal, just and fair society for all Canadians. And so that was really my long term interest in the Senate, but as well, of course, the ongoing work that I had been doing. And have you found it to be an effective way of elevating those voices in comparison to where you were before as, as an executive director of an association with, with significant standing? Well, I think you and others are probably the better judge of that than I am. Um, I do know that the first speech I made in the Senate was on the overrepresentation of Indigenous women in our prisons. And my particular interest in that was, of course, because women, in particular Indigenous women, those with mental health issues, are the fastest growing prison population, not just in Canada, but around the world. And since then, at least a third of my colleagues, more than 30 senators, have actually come into the prisons. Many people, after that speech, came forward and said they had no idea that members of parliament, judges and senators had a right of access to prisons. And so a number of colleagues have exercised that right, not just through 
a human rights review that the Human Rights Committee has been doing on prisons, but also independently after we debated Bill C-83, the bill that renamed segregation and calls it structured intervention units, there were a number of senators who were extremely concerned that the bill was passed without the amendments we had made in the Senate, because many of those amendments were made on the basis of the, what the senators were seeing when we went into the prisons. And and what we knew that the House of Commons, the members of Parliament, had not seen because they hadn't necessarily been in the prisons to see what was happening. And now some of your colleagues are also joining us on visits. The last visit we did in uh, Victoria, two MPs joined us. And so we're opening this up to say, you know, obviously not right now during this pandemic, but as we move forward, our hope is that more and more members of Parliament will also join us and exercise their right. When I would be denied access to prisons in the past, I used to go looking for members of parliament to help me get back into the prisons after things like the death of Ashley Smith, after situations like the one at the prison for women in Kingston in the 90s that gave rise to the Arbor report. And so I think it really is part of our responsibility to know what's actually happening in our prisons when we're passing legislation. Post-pandemic, I will certainly participate in that as well. Excellent. Do you see challenges with the current structure to the Senate in what you had hoped it would be versus what it is? I have to say, on a personal note, I'm sometimes jealous of the Senate because of that independence, but I I also recognize you don't sit in caucus, and so maybe there aren't the same opportunities to exert influence that a member of parliament might have. Well, I've never been a member of parliament, so I don't know the details. People used to joke that if I had been asked to run for some of the parties in the past, and the joke used to be I might get elected, but then the minute I wouldn't vote with the party, I'd be kicked out of caucus. So, <laughs> Though that has not been my experience. So, so there, you know, uh, there's a freedom with the independence, but there's also the responsibility then of, of really ensuring that the information you're providing educates people enough that they can move in a certain direction. So for instance, my first experience really with a piece of legislation that I felt very strongly about that I initially wanted to oppose, but then thought as a parliamentarian now, I have a different responsibility uh, and tried to fix was Bill C-83. There was also the sexual assault capacity provisions. There were others in immigration. There were, you know, there've been other pieces of legislation. You know, I really put a lot of work into trying to fix Bill C-83. And the Senate came on side with that, but the House of Commons did not in the end. And I think part of it was, you know, is a function of what we were seeing when we went into prisons and what maybe people were believing would be different because of the legislation when it passed the House of Commons. It's a challenge too in the, on the House side when your strong work out of the Senate, and that's a perfect example of it, uh, and I would say this more independent Senate has consistently amended bills in a positive way, Overall, the challenge is when we we vote on block. So it's sort of upvote, downvote on the government's decision to accept amendments. And in if the government decides to accept some amendments that are positive and, and ditch amendments that are positive too, in the House, it's a real challenge to say, well, I'm, I'm not going to vote against the acceptance of some positive amendments. Yeah, and I think the learning is, there are days that it's frustrating, absolutely. But the learning as we move forward, my hope is that we will see, even though we're physically more distant now, we're not in the same building, uh, that there will be ways for us to work together more on these sorts of issues and other issues where we now have a number of us in the Senate who have worked specifically on some of these 
issues. And in the past, parliamentary committees as well as Senate committees may have considered us as valuable witnesses, but now we have our voice gets blended into all of the other voices that were available. But perhaps there's a way to really harness the information and the energy in a way that moves us forward more collectively in the future. And I'm certainly hopeful for that. And we have had already some opportunities, you and I, to work together. Mm -hmm. We have participated alongside one another at the All-Party Anti-Poverty Caucus, Mm -hmm. and you have been very proactive about tabling legislation, and we promised as a party to reform mandatory minimum sentences, and I don't know if it's because of the difficult politics of it more broadly, but we haven't really acted on that in a serious way, and so you have a bill that I have agreed to second in the House when it gets there, but that bill would move the needle faster than any government action on that file today. 208 is the the bill to allow the judges the discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties. Uh, It wasn't an original thought, as few things are. It was uh, (laughs) something that Erwin Kotler had worked on previously, uh, and I like to think of it as his attempt to correct what happened when he was justice minister, but that's me putting words in his mouth, perhaps. (laughs) But he came up with that idea, and I thought it was a good idea, and so with his permission, tried to move it forward in the last parliament. It didn't move forward, and I'm very grateful for your assistance in trying to move it forward now. And then another of your colleagues, Judy Scro, is is sponsoring the bill basically to try and streamline the pardon process or the record suspension process so that convictions could expire and so people could get on with their lives. And and then we're also working, uh, you and I, through the Anti-Poverty Caucus, as with many other MPs and senators on this whole idea of guaranteed livable income and how do we repair our social safety net, which the evisceration of it has become so apparent during this COVID pandemic, the healthcare, the social services, the and even educational service issues that have come to light because we haven't taken care of some of these areas in the past. Why do you think it's so hard to follow the evidence with respect to prison reform? It's just because of populist sentiments and then elected politicians like me are, are, are gutless and, and can't move forward with it in the face of popular opinion and the conservatives wave their finger and say mandatory minimum sentences and lock these people away for life and and that is just a popular sentiment? Well, I don't think of you as gutless and I don't (laughs) think of many of your colleagues as gutless. Another thing that's happening in this pandemic that I really like is people talking about care-mongering as opposed to fear-mongering. I think we've had decades of fear-mongering and it has become very easy to blame the people who end up in the most unequal situations, not just those in prisons, but people who are poor, the missing and murdered Indigenous women, you know, somehow they're at fault, women to experience violence. We have this tendency, those who are most vulnerable and most at risk of whether it's of being poor, of being victimized, of whether it's because of their gender, because of their race, because of their situation, somehow it's easy to hyper-responsibilize those individuals and say, if they could just pull themselves up, you know, and I, I love Hugh Siegel's, the title of his new book, you know, Bootstraps Need Boots. And I think really what this pandemic has laid bare is that we have you know, almost everybody wants to talk about vulnerable people right now and recognize that we need to reduce the numbers in prisons in order to make space to do the hygiene and physical distancing practices. We need to be providing for people who are poor or on the street, who are struggling, who have mental health issues. There's a new uh, sensitivity to how close so many people were to being on the edge. And so within weeks, 
people who thought they were in comfortable, stable situations suddenly found themselves economically unstable, their housing was unstable, their health was unstable. And so I really do hope and I believe that coming out of this, there'll be a renewed energized, much like what I understand happened post-World War II, post the Spanish flu epidemic, that we'll actually see people wanting to work together to rebuild this so that, you know, if scientists and medical professionals are correct, and this is just the first of many, then we will be ready as the world moves forward in the in the coming years and decades to not have a repetition of the huge crises, series of crises, economic as well as housing and health crises that we've faced over the last two months. I want to get to that conversation about social infrastructure and, and building out a basic income because you had so many senators sign on to a letter of yours alongside Senator Lankin. Before that, though, your focus on prisons and prisoners, because th- there is obviously a relationship between poverty and prisons, but there are many people who live in poverty and have no interactions with our prison system and are law-abiding citizens. And so the Globe said about you, for 35 years, Kim Pate has been our country's most prominent advocate for the hundreds of women locked away in prisons. And as a senator, you have been an advocate for decarceration why the focus on on prisons and prisoners specifically? How did you go down this path to say, I'm going to devote my life to protecting prisoners and improving the standing and human rights of prisoners? During law school, I started going, I worked first with young people, then with men, then with women in terms of prisons. But when I was at law school in Halifax, um, the clinic that was in my final year I worked at, I had done an independent research project on the Young Offenders Act, as it was, was just about to come in. And so because I had done that work, and very few people, including the lawyers we were working with, the judges who were in youth court, knew that area. I was at the clinic, and suddenly I was... I had this opportunity to work with all of these new cases coming through under the Young Offenders Act. And one of the things that I hadn't really thought about, I'm ashamed to say before that, is even though I was a working class kid, even though, you know, I was the first in my family to get a university education, I hadn't really thought about the systemic issues that face. So, and so uh, I started going into the youth jails, I started going into the adult jails. And what I saw, and I went to law school to make money, let's not be clear. Like I wasn't going to do social justice or any kind of other work. I was, I thought I was going to be going and making money. And then that way I could support and help make sure everybody in my circle was economically okay. But what I saw was it was the kids who were in care, who had already been in situations of neglect or experienced violence, or for whatever reason, were in care of the state. It was the poor kids and it was the racialized kids who were predominantly being criminalized and imprisoned. And that wasn't the only people who were necessarily doing things that were wrong. And we don't do self-report studies anymore that I know of. But you know, in the days when we used to do self-report studies, there's very few of us who are adults who have not done things for which we could have been criminalized, but for who we knew, who we did it to, who reported it, what our opportunities were, whether we had a home, whether we had family who stepped in, if we actually did get charged, if we had a lawyer, if you know, all of those things. And so it became very clear to me very early on that the jails aren't full of the people who do the worst things. The jails are generally full of the people who have the least privilege and resources uh, available to them. And when you say, you know, 
there's lots of poor people who don't break the law. That's true. But if you look at everybody who's on social assistance, there is nowhere in this country where people can survive on social assistance without doing something for which they could be criminalized if it was monitored and if they were pursued. And, and that came home to me very clearly in, um, in the late 90s when we were working with a woman named Kim Rogers who died while under house arrest for welfare fraud. And it wasn't until after she was dead and during the inquest, we realized that she should never have even been criminalized, that she had available to her a mechanism to be eligible and go to school because she had a disability. But nobody knew that. The people, very well-intentioned social workers, the lawyers who were working with her, nobody knew that. And so the reality is there are many things that happen to poor people that if it happened to folks who had relative resources and privilege would be gone in an instant. So for instance, things like right now, as the CERB is being paid out, there will be clawbacks in some provinces and a number of your colleagues and ours are working on how do we encourage the provinces not to do that. And it's showing that we actually need to fundamentally overhaul the social assistance schemes in this country. And then do you draw a distinction when you rebut some of the attacks and some of the push to say we should have a greater focus on retribution and these mandatory minimum sentences? Do you try to draw a distinction at all? The examples you highlighted there are people who have been challenged in, in many different ways in, in their lives, and they have maybe turned to what we consider crime to get by. And there is an understanding there that if we better provided for those individuals, they wouldn't be in that place versus violent offenses versus sexual assault. Do you draw any lines in the defense of, of certain prisoners over others? Well, certainly in my years, I, for a period of time, worked with male sex offenders because that was an area that I found I had one of the biggest blocks to what do we do that's more progressive. What I found out, though, when I worked with them is almost all of them had themselves experienced sexual abuse. And that's not to excuse behavior. But when we know that, for instance, Mount Cashel, which many of the the folks of my generation will remember when the brothers in Newfoundland were all being charged. A friend of mine and a classmate was one of the prosecutors. And she mentioned that many of the witnesses who had been children who had been sexually abused by the priests and the brothers in Mount Cashel were themselves in prison as sex offenders when they went looking for them. Many of the girls who had been abused had been, you know, were on the street, had died, were in abusive relationships. So that's not to excuse any of that. But when we understand that part of this is because we don't take seriously the inequality that we set up in the first place, economic, gender, racial inequality, and then we see it, well, you know, we see the impact of it as who we actually blame, who we hold accountable more than other people by looking in a prison. So for instance, when you talk about men who have committed sexual assault, I'm not suggesting we open the doors and everybody run free. But I am saying that when we look at who's there, we should be examining what our part is in providing a situation where their abuse was not dealt with, where their misogyny and their attitudes that were ingrained, whether it's in their homes or communities of origin or through the treatment they received when after they were abused, that we have a responsibility to be correcting at every level. And the prisons, from my perspective, have become the place, the repository of every individual who we have literally thrown away. And so that's how Indigenous women are the fastest growing and the highest percentage, because we know from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry that with the intersection of misogyny and race means that many, many Indigenous women have been treated as disposable. I don't want to accept that. I don't accept it. 
but it's the only conclusion, I should say, that the evidence bears out. And so if we really want to address it, it's not by harsher penalties, it's not by creating more inequality, it's by rolling back and saying, how do we, you know, is guaranteed income part of it? Is more equitable access to education? Is ensuring that people have an, um, a more equitable opportunity to start and contribute and be part of society? And, and we don't have that yet in Canada. We talk about it and we've got a charter that says we do, but I think we, you know, part of, part of why I'm excited to be in the Senate is I see that as part of my role as a senator now to continually work on that area and use all the incredible resources we have available to work on that. And so so that we do take seriously violence against women, so that we do take seriously racial inequality. And then we look at who is not taken care of in that situation. And I think there are many people, the heads of corrections in the mid-90s said, uh, so these were all men at the time, federal, provincial, and territorial, said that we could release 75% of the people then in prison and not increase risk to public safety. And that's because they know when we look at women, I can count on one hand the number of women who have committed predatory acts of violence without somebody else first triggering it. And again, it doesn't mean to excuse every act of violence, but when you know that the majority of the women who are in for violent offenses and children for that matter, have first reacted to the violence done to them and then uh, done it in sometimes ways that have been characterized as vengeful or been characterized as too much to have been self-defense or self-defense wasn't even contemplated, then you know that we're talking about a different scenario than what we often think of when we think about violent offenses. Retribution, I think as a principle, still has a role to play in our criminal justice system. Society looks to government to punish people on our behalf, and we don't have the vigilantism, we don't allow people to take the law into their own hands because government is there to to take on that retribution to some extent. But there are other principles that need to be at play as well. It's obviously on the question of Indigenous overrepresentation. When I go into classrooms and talk to kids about the disparities and that 25% of our prisons are, are made up with Indigenous people, they're left shaking their heads and they can't understand how that is acceptable in, in, in Canada today. And it, of course, isn't. While retribution has a role to play as a principle, the overriding focus surely has to be public safety. And when we take that overriding focus, that not only means maybe some people could be released, it also means when we look at the question of reintegration, very few people in our society are going to be in prison for their entire lives. And so surely we want to put people in the best place they can be on the way out of prison to reintegrate our society and keep our society Absolutely. safe. Absolutely. And those numbers, so 25% is for men. 42% of women in federal prisons are Indigenous. And I was just working on a case in Saskatchewan recently, 98% of girls in custody in Saskatchewan are Indigenous. So that's horrifying. Yeah, so we're not talking about an equal application of the law. And so retribution may be used for some cases, but not all. And it's part of the reason that deterrence was taken out of the Youth Criminal Justice Act entirely, as was solitary confinement, because of recognition that, in fact, it, the punishment that many people will advocate, if it worked, then the United States should be the safest place in the world. Because if, in fact, just punishing people taught them a lesson, well, we'd be doing very different things in terms of how we parent. The reality is most of us know that punishment alone does not 
solve anything. And that, in fact, it's education. It's people taking time to understand, why did you do that thing? I mean, I often use in the, in the beginning of the courses that I teach, a quote by Anatole France who goes back to the 1700s in France. And it's, the law applies equally to the rich and the poor. Neither is permitted to steal bread or sleep under bridges. Well, to me, that epitomizes what we don't talk about in terms of the law is that what we criminalize and what we privilege is not necessarily like right now why isn't it criminal that seniors homes are so underfunded and that we have not taken care of children and elderly in the way that we think they should be and and so we have diminished the roles of those who take care of people similarly in healthcare the janitors and the personal support workers who and the aides who are being relied on to clean up to deliver to to take care of some of the basic health care issues are some of the most underfunded have the least benefits all of those sorts of things and so you know i think you know we do need to think about all of those areas but i started out i grew up working class i believed you do the crime you do the time. I pretty basic. I would have said I believed in capital punishment as a kid because I was raised that way. It was only going into the prisons and seeing who's actually there and then being out in community and seeing who's not being held accountable for sort of pretty egregious behavior sometimes, particularly when it came to sexual assault and, you know, watching, literally observing people doing things that was reprehensible that they were never held accountable for. And, you know, we've had Me Too, we've had all of these things, but we really still are in a phase where we haven't fundamentally said it is not okay to treat people in ways that are commodify them or that denigrate them because of their gender, because of their race. And I think we, we really need to go there. And, and you know, I, I mentioned uh, social assistance recipients. If middle-income folks, if their debts were treated the way debts are treated for poor people or on assistance, there'd be a huge outcry. So when you borrow money, if you're on social assistance, it's counted as income. Can you imagine if if we were all taxed based on the money you borrow for a car, the money you borrow for to, to for a mortgage, and you know there'd be a hue and cry. It would stop in an instant. And why doesn't it happen? Because there's such a, a stigma attached to poor people, and they don't have the resources to actually mount those fights by and large. And so. You know, I think we, we have a lot of work to do to adjust and to really make our society much more equal. I saw privilege in the differential treatment of people more, more closely in my own life through drug policy, where you see the numbers of people picked up for previously for cannabis and, and for other substances. And as a white man who went to law school and while my parents were both teachers and I didn't come from great wealth, I certainly am incredibly privileged overall in our society. And I would never have feared arrest for cannabis possession. It should never have been illegal, ridiculous that it was, but I never would have faced that kind of injustice that too many poor people without representation and frankly, too many black people in Toronto faced disproportionately. And, and so there are so many different areas of policy where we see that kind of differential treatment by our justice system. Would you, would you decriminalize all drugs? Yes, we should look to what Portugal has done, where in addition to decriminalizing drugs, they invested the resources they used to spend on criminalizing and incarcerating folks, and instead invested those monies into education initiatives, uh, addiction support services, and other health-related health services. Imagine that, treating a healthcare issue as a healthcare issue. Yeah. <laughs> we made a number of promises that I mentioned before, and, and you've probably introduced stronger legislation 
as an individual senator on justice policy than our government has over the last five years. When you look at the progress we have made, and you mentioned the solitary confinement bill, would you give us a passing grade so no. far? Okay, well, let's, ho- let's hope that your private member's bill <laughs> or your, your, uh, your public bill out of the Senate becomes law then. There were two studies done in the last parliament on Indigenous people in prison, one focused on Indigenous women, the status of women one, and the public safety one focused on Indigenous prisoners. I actually think if you look at those compared to some of what we've done in the Human Rights Committee in the Senate, the the big difference in the depth of the analysis, really, I I do think, relates to the fact that we were going into the prisons. And most of the studies are done based on really important good intentions out of Ottawa, But then we rely on the very folks who haven't necessarily got the greatest history of being transparent and accountable. We rely on corrections to advise us on what to do. I think the same thing happened with Bill C-83 on segregation, that the minister had every intent, uh, then minister and current minister, that they were getting rid of segregation. But if you don't go into the prisons and you don't realize that every maximum security prison in this country now has become a series of segregated units, how could you know that if you've not seen it and you're just relying on what you're being told by the bureaucrats. And so I think one of the challenges is to really understand how important it is to actually get out and see some of these things and then hold to account a system that really is the last to be brought under the jurisdiction of the courts, the prison system. And impossible for us to go in today because of COVID-19, because it's unsafe, but it is also unsafe for prisoners and correctional officers to be in these facilities. People are not able to physically distance in a way that is consistent with public health. And if unfortunately, that may mean facing even more dire circumstances of confinement and, and, and solitary confinement if they aren't allowed to interact with one another or be in more open spaces within the prisons. So damned if you do, damned if you don't, in, in, in some ways, it seems. You've been incredibly active and vocal in calling for the minister in our government to act quickly to release nonviolent offenders and individuals who would not pose a risk to public safety. Have we moved quickly enough? No, unfortunately. And in fact, I think the minister was misled by some of the correctional authorities because just a few weeks ago, he was reported saying that they had released hundreds of prisoners. There are the thousands of prisoners released every year, not because of anything except that their sentences are come due and they're, they should be being released. So on average, about 600 people are released a month in this country on parole, on you know some form of release, or their warrant expires, the warrant of committal, their prison sentence expires. And so there are measures that could be put in place to increase that. And I think the, again, my fear is that the minister and other officials have been misled by what in fact has been being done. And in fact, I wasn't surprised when I saw the, the appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada dropped because coming out of this, we will see that solitary confinement has been the go-to measure used to address the health issues within prisons. And so I think we're going to see massive problems coming out of this in terms of not just in the institutions where there have been outbreaks, but also in situations where people were put at greater risk of developing other health issues, of uh, mental health issues because of the conditions of confinement to which they are being subject right now. And so, you know, and including minimum security, if you can imagine being someone who's minimum security, I was advised there were 94 people when the pandemic Uh, was declared, who had been granted parole, so should have been in the community, 
but were not yet in the community. And a number of them have since been released, but many still haven't. And so I've been asking questions of the government as to how many were designated for release? What's the situation? What was the situation pre-pandemic? What's the situation been post-pandemic? I have to tell you, I've yet to get those numbers. I've been asking for them in the calls, the parliamentary calls. I've been asking for them publicly. I've been asking for them privately. And if I were the minister, I would be extremely concerned that the lack of oversight, the lack of his ability to get access to that, to accurate information has been really laid bare in this, during this pandemic. And that leaves him at risk as a, and it leaves all parliamentarians at risk in my view. And so we really need to have that kind of oversight. I've been speaking to the folks who were put in charge of overseeing the new structured intervention units. They're not getting information. The folks who are doing the independent decision-making, their recommendations aren't being followed. Like how will that be followed up? post-pandemic. And, and this was happening before the pandemic, so we can imagine how much worse it must be now. And that's just the narrow piece that we call structured intervention units, not the other kinds of segregation that exists, whether it's called medical observation, intensive psychiatric care, uh, step-down units, voluntary limited association ranges. Like there, I can't count how many new names there are for segregation now that exists, but only one is being monitored, and that's the one that's called structured intervention. And obviously, where an individual poses a risk to public safety, they can't be released in the course of this pandemic. But surely there are any number of prisoners held in federal prisons who do not pose that risk to public safety. And instead, we are either putting them at risk as a matter of a health risk, or the answer to that health risk is to put them in solitary confinement and then pose uh, a mental health risk. In either case, prisoners' rights are detrimentally affected. Well, and it's not just mental health. As we now know, it creates physical health issues as well, and that some of the underlying health conditions that prisoners have is related to their inability to move around, their inability to have nutritious food. So there's the interrelatedness of all of that as well. And yes, I think post-pandemic, we will see many of those issues come forward and people be willing to explore what we need to be doing differently. You have also, in the course of this pandemic, been very vocal about a guaranteed annual income. You had, it's, it's an issue that you've been vocal about before the pandemic, but obviously the pandemic has laid bare the gaps and employment insurance has far too many gaps when we see so many people uh, lose their employment all at once. And the crisis has shown people that we are not immune. Someone who never thought that they would be in this circumstance finds themselves in a circumstance of, of unemployment. Somehow you got 50 senators to sign on to a letter of yours. I'm interested in how that advocacy came about. You called for using the tax rolls to send a crisis minimum income to all who are in need. So question number one is, how did you get so many senators to sign on to this? But qu question two is, what do you mean by that? Before the pandemic, I had started an inquiry in the Senate and had basically put out whoever else is interested in this issue and did a, a speech on why I thought we needed to be looking at a guaranteed livable income type of approach in Canada. And so that was one piece. Um, Francis Lincoln, who co-authored the letter, well, 50 of us co-authored it, but Francis Lincoln also had, put, had started a motion to have an, um, a study done on 
the issues around gig economy and the uncertain economic future of certain types of employment, and particularly in the age we are where increased artificial intelligence and the like is an issue. So the two of us were related and inter integrated uh, perspectives looking at similar issues. And so that had started before the pandemic. And so when the pandemic hit and we started to see all of the people we predicted would fall through the cracks. And so we thought, well, this is one way that we could actually right away look at who on the tax rolls has an income that falls below the 24,000 that the government decided. And right away, say, issue money to those individuals with an understanding and that, you know, if, if your money is higher than this, you know, at tax time, some of this will be due back. But it was one way. And then free up the time for the folks in the bureaucracy, the government workers who are now spending heaven knows how much time on phones trying to, to process applications, instead have them say, okay, now the ones that are falling through the cracks who we're still not addressing, how do we actually get them registered on the tax rolls and set up the algorithms so that individuals who aren't already there, whether it's because they're just entering the workforce or because they're on the street or they've been in prison before or whatever reasons they're not registered, that we could get them registered and get assistance to them quickly. And then we, you know, we look to economists like Evelyn Forget and folks that former Senators Art Eggleton and Hugh Siegel had been working with around some of these issues because as our, yours and my predecessors on the Anti-Poverty Caucus, they were ones who were already looking at some of these issues for many years. We went back and looked at what did the Kroll Report suggest in 1971 out of the Senate. And in fact, they, they recommended this kind of approach back then. And everything pointed to the fact that the reason it hadn't been implemented is really because while there's initial outlay of cost, as we're seeing now during the pandemic, the benefits of it could take up to two electoral cycles before we see the benefits. Well, what government, aside from in a crisis like this, is going to be willing to risk? We're going to have an outlay of costs that we'll see the benefit of in maybe five, seven, ten years down the road in savings to healthcare, savings to prison and criminal legal systems, uh, to general welfare of Canadians, and boosts, you know, in involvement in the economy, better educated populace. Well, it was part of the reason that we were working on it in the Senate and trying to get more in interest, public interest in these issues before the pandemic, because we recognize that very few governments would take it on because of the risk that you wouldn't see the benefit right away. Now we have the pandemic and you, we have to outlay the resources. We can't just stand by and watch people die, literally die because of the health issues or a combination of they can't afford to take the measures they need to to protect their health. And so, you know, that's part of what we're talking about. And we're talking about a an income-tested approach, not a universal. So some people, and in fact, the Prime Minister, when he responded to this, to our letter publicly after being asked a question by a reporter said, didn't support a universal basic income. Well, we're not talking about it. a universal basic income would be every Canadian gets money. When you wrote using the tax rules to send a crisis minimum income, had you just read that part of the sentence, you might think you were calling for a universal basic income. Now you say to all who are in need. And so I took from that that you weren't calling for a universal approach and that it was for people below a certain amount or who had lost income and were therefore in need. I like to think of it as a universally accessible like our healthcare system. When you need it, you can access it. But it's not every one of us gets a check because as it was Art Eggleton who I thought very pointedly put it. He said, you know, I used to be before he was a senator and before he was a mayor of Toronto, he was um, an accountant. And he said, people who have a lot of money hire people to help protect their money. So if we sent out $2,000 to people who have a lot of money, they may figure out a way to be able to keep 
that extra $2,000. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to address the, the needs of those. So it's an income tested. And I've sometimes slipped and used the term means-based. And I don't mean, I correct myself because means tested usually means that someone gets to judge whether you're entitled. And that's not what we're talking about because that's in fact been part of the problem with our social assistance scheme. When I was a single mom, if I had been in need of social assistance, some person, often a social worker or a, a clerk working, would plug in all the details and then decide whether I deserve to have that income. If I had a car, should I be selling my car first? And in some cases, in some jurisdictions, it's what we're finding out right now, is it's like apples and oranges. In some jurisdictions, you're allowed to have a car. And in some jurisdictions, you're not. In other places, you can accept groceries from your family. In other places, you can't. That's considered fraudulent if you don't declare it. So we need an approach that is much more clear and ultimately more fair. It just tracks back to the idea of a social safety net, that no one in our society is going to fall below this income level because we don't want anyone in our society to live in poverty, not only because as a matter of social justice, it is, it is wrong to allow our neighbor to live in poverty, but it is also a terrible thing going forward for our society, whether it is health costs, whether it is your conversation about criminal justice and, and why people land in prison in the first place, whether it is a matter of, of mental health and, and the knock-on consequences of poverty are so great for our society writ large that we, we can't afford it in the end. That's right. And we know from places where they've tried some of these sorts of approaches, so, you know, places like Iceland and Finland and others where we see they not only have a, a more highly educated, more involvement in the economy, people actually working more, more uh, volunteerism, and essentially a higher standard of living for everybody, lower crime rates, lower health care costs, and uh, a generally happier society. Like, why wouldn't you want to go there? I want to go there. <laughs> Though uh, it does have to be paid for in some way, although it was put some, somewhat starkly by uh, Professor Forget when she told me that if you accounted for the existing payments in social assistance, that you'd be looking at an additional expenditure of 26 or so, uh, around $25 billion. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so we just did a $6 billion tax cut through raising the personal exemption that will benefit I mean, members of parliament just got a tax cut in a completely unnecessary way. And then you're looking at two ticks of the GST and, and then you're almost there. And so it's it's not insurmountable. That's right. I think it's infinitely doable for a rich country like Canada. And apart from the prime minister getting asked by the media about the letter and responding incorrectly to a suggestion for a universal basic income. Have you received any formal response or any substantive response? Not yet. No, we haven't. Um, I do note that this weekend I received a message from the bishops of the Catholic and Anglican bishops apparently have all signed on. The Pope has signed on. Like, Looks like other people are interested in this. I'm hopeful that we will look at going forward. If not for this, you know, we're now well into the 16 weeks of this first economic intervention, maybe for the next, because it's not likely that we'll be able to move directly back to the, you know, the economy as it was um, once this 16 weeks is up, that we could look at something for the next iteration. And at the very least, as we're examining post-pandemic, what measures have been taken that we can actually look at uh, some better measures to be more prepared as we move forward, not just for this pandemic, but as we move forward in the future. And it strikes me that the 2019 tax rolls are not the perfect answer in some ways, because so many people have 
lost their income that they did have in the last year, that you would need some combination of the tax rolls and also something CERB-like where people attest to losing their income in the course of the pandemic. But either way, I hope that we move to a system like that. And I hope at a minimum that you and your 50 colleagues in the Senate receive a substantive reply and, and serious engagement on this issue. Me too. And uh, we're continuing to work on it. We're now approaching provinces and urging provinces to not claw back and to examine options that uh, we could be looking at going forward. Well, Kim, thank you for joining me and thank you for all of your advocacy over the years. It is really important, I think, that we have individuals like yourself who have been lifelong advocates for those who don't have a voice to have those kinds of voices in the Senate where people don't face the same electoral pressures and can speak a little bit more honestly at times. So I, I appreciate you joining me and look forward to working together. Well, I look forward to continuing to work with you as well. And thank you. That's a very kind and generous and I will aspire to live up to that. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes, including on the topic of basic income, where we'll be joined by former Senators Art Eagleton and Hugh Siegel speaking together on the topic.